Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Alex. And this is Connor. Welcome to the Sales Engineering Podcast. We are really excited to bring on Mark Church, a product manager at Google Cloud. This episode is a blueprint on how to change roles and move forward in your career. Mark shares his perspective on the dimensions of your career, how he navigated from being an SE to a product manager, and best practices on how SEs can better interact with the product team. So get ready to learn from an inspiring product leader. Welcome to the edge of sales engineering. Hey, Mark, Alex and I are super excited to have you on the podcast today. Awesome. It's good to be here. Yeah, we're super excited to talk to you, Mark. This is a conversation that I've been wanting to have with you for a long time now, and specifically about SE career paths. Part of the reason why I actually knew about sales engineering to begin with is because, Mark, you went into the SE program at Cisco right out of school. But I don't want to tell your entire story for you. Mark, tell us a little bit more about who you are and your career path thus far. Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me on. Um, I think this is a super important topic. Um, It's something that I wish I had listened to when I was kind of at those stages of my career where I was considering it. But um, yeah, so I mean, you and I, we met back in college and um, I ended up going over to Cisco. I was lucky enough to kind of get introduced very early into this SE career path and and what being a systems engineer or a sales engineer actually is. Uh, later on, went to the startup life and then back to a uh, big company. And so I've kind of seen a lot of aspects of the SE career, you know, the post-sales career, and then also now the product management engineering side of things. So it's kind of come full circle. Yeah. And, and to add on to that, you, you've had quite the career thus far as well. Just uh, kind of highlighting some of that a little bit more. I mean, uh, Cisco Systems right out of school, uh, Docker, which is super successful startup, and, and now uh, you're a PM at, at Google, so one, one of the top technology companies there is. Um, I'm, I'm, so pretty amazing career path thus far. Uh, I'm curious, though, during all of this growth, uh, like you've had a lot of success in your career thus far, but would love to know and just kind of peel back the onion a little bit. Uh, what is one of the, the biggest professional setbacks that you've had on your career thus far? Okay. Yeah. Good, good question. Um, I will, you know, why don't we just start at the the beginning and I'll kind of take you through. And then in the middle, there's a giant cliff (laughs) that I had fallen off of. That was, you know, pretty challenging for me. So I, I started out at Cisco and I, I was interviewing with all kind of the, you know, the standard tech companies that you would look at, you know, the Microsoft, Cisco, IBM, blah, blah, blah. And, um, found a program that seemed like it was really neat because this prep program, a lot of people um, that were uh, coming out of college into the same thing where they essentially taught you the basics of the technology that just goes in and everything like that. Um, so this introduced me to the world um, uh, of, of systems engineering. Cisco for a couple of years moved internationally and, and did SE in Germany for a little bit, came back to the Bay area, um, did uh did systems engineering uh, uh, where I was working in data center networking with companies like Salesforce and Airbnb. 
And that was really great because it kind of being in the Bay Area where a lot of this technology is and having very technologically astute customers introduced me and exposed me to all kinds of things much earlier than I would have been if I was somewhere else, right, in a different market. And um, that actually introduced me to Docker. I, I had um, – there's another SE on my team. His name is Nico. And um, he was a guy I really respected. He came from from University of Michigan, did aeronautical engineering. He was one of the sharpest guys on the team. And he was playing around with this, you know, open source project called Docker and just kind of extolling it and saying, you know, how incredible it was and, and how, you know, the, the things it could do he thought was really going to change the industry. Um, you know, I started just messing around with it and I kind of agreed with him. So he ended up going to Docker. I quickly followed him after that. Um, and my whole world had changed a lot because I went from an SE, a really large company with a massive set of products and a lot of support in different areas and figuring things out to a really, really small company where an SE wore just a whole lot of hats. Um, and, uh, and, and that was, it was fun because I had just a very small product set that I was now selling and, and had to know. And so I could really become much more of an expert in a narrow space but I was doing like more activities. I was, you know, spending more time, you know, trying to actually install things and, and get very, very technically deep to a level that I just simply wasn't before at, at Cisco. And so it was just like a different aspect of being an SE. Um, right. And so that's, that's kind of how it rounded out. But get, I guess getting to the professional challenge side of things is working at a startup was, was really challenging. And, and Docker, I think, as most people know, had kind of a, a, you know, a dramatic up and down. It was um, a startup that for like the first year and a half was a roller coaster up. Um, and then in many ways was a roller coaster down for the last year. And so going through that with a startup, it really felt like, um, especially one, you know, that had as high highs and low lows as Docker. Um, it, it was like how I felt on each day was dependent, was really just like the last customer conversation I had was basically my mood for the entire day. Some days were great. Some days were terrible. It was just so much do or die. Um, and it was so extreme that that was, it was a challenging experience that I never want to go through again, but I did learn a lot from it. Yeah. That, that emotional roller coaster, as you put it, I think is like a perfect description because I I've had similar experiences in, in the startup world and yeah, it's, it's not easy. So it, it sounds like, um, kind of that roller coaster of emotions, like, I guess what allowed you to kind of push through that and, and keep moving forward? I mean, I don't know. I think one thing that I really like about having, you know, having been at SC is you work with the sales team um, and salespeople are fun. <laughs> and, I, and I think <laughs> that having good camaraderie with your sales team helps a lot because um, they're, they've got your back. They know that they, they depend fully on you and you depend on them. Um, and I think it's that kind of team spirit and camaraderie that you get in sales that quite honestly, I, I don't see as much a lot in other areas of the business. And that really helps because you have some, I've really gotten, you know, you've got customer conversations where you really get beat up, you know, something broke in the product or, you know, and it wasn't your fault, but you're still the person that's, that has to answer to the customer. You are the face of the company from a technical perspective right. of that customer. And so you're the one getting beat up in that meeting by, a VP or a CTO or whatever, it doesn't feel good. But I think that the camaraderie always kind of brings you through that. Wow. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree that that doesn't get talked about a lot. And it's one of my favorite things about being an SE is that that deep trust that you have where you have to be very authentic in it. 
uh, but it builds an incredible relationship with you and your sales counterparts to, to go through these, these wins and loses together and then to continue to learn and grow. Switching gears a little bit to our main episode topic today is career paths. And career paths for sales engineers, we have so many options because we're arguably one of the most cross-functional roles in any organization, right? We work with sales, uh, primarily sales, but we also work with success, solutions architects, CSMs. We work with product to give them feedback and, and help bring products to market. We work with engineering to help prioritize bugs. And uh, we work with security, recruiting, marketing, really spanning so many organizations. These, these skills, how, how does it set us up for these different roles? So I'd love to learn about your thought process around all of these paths that you could have taken uh, from starting out as a sales engineer, how did you start to evaluate these for yourself uh, and then eventually take you in the direction of product? Yeah, no, that's, that's a good question because I think that there's, there's a lot available to SEs um, because it sits in the middle of so many different functions. I had friends that um, they transitioned from SE to the software engineering world. Um, I've had SE friends that uh, transitioned out. Uh, I've got one of my best friends is he was one of the best uh, SEs at Cisco and he's a life coach now, right? So I think it goes the same. Wow. It's just like a lot, of, a lot of different paths that come from it. Um, and, and there's a lot of opportunity available to you. So I, when I, I think one of the reasons I first got into SE because I, I did electrical and computer engineering and was, you know, a lot of the people that come out of those programs are going into software engineering. And there was something in me that just really wanted more I guess closeness to the business and kind of social contact to it. And, and, and I think that SE really scratched that itch for me. Um, but after I was, you know, in career for a couple of years, especially at Cisco, you start to think, well, where, where's this going to go next for me? Right? Like you've kind of gained the experiences in SE and, and there's a couple different paths, right? So at, at big companies, there, especially at Cisco, you, you have different types of SE roles who so have a generalist role. And I always think about this as kind of like a box that's, you know, either it's tall or it's wide. The mm. square area of the box is the same no matter what. We have people that are very, very deep. It's a very narrow box and they're a specialist in there in one specific product, but they know very little about other products, right? And you have generalists that are very, very mm. wide. And then you can sometimes have people that are a square, you know, <laughs> they're jack of all trades, not really a specialist. And so uh, that's that's one kind of dimension of the SE career path. It's like, do you want to be you want to be the guy in the room that knows everything about something? And I think that's definitely something that a lot of people want. It's like they they want to be someone that people rely on for information. They're 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 the one with the answer. Um, other people just want to be dynamic and they want to be able to do all kinds of things, work with all kind of customers, and see a new thing every day. And so that's more of a generalist kind of thing. So. That was one dimension of the SE path because kind of one is always like you go up the career ladder by becoming more and more specialized. Another one is management. You look at, okay, is that something, you know, cause I, I looked at that and said, maybe that's for me, you know, there's more, you know, you think there's more prestige you get a team under you, your, your sphere of influence becomes larger. Um, and, and to be honest, it wasn't until I was at Docker at a small company where I was kind of exposed to more different types of roles because we were, you know, we're jammed into one building uh, we shared the same floor. And so I would, you know, unlike where at a really large company where you're a little bit more siloed, I would work with, you know, directly with software engineering. I'd work directly with product management. And that's where the kind of the idea started to plant in my head that, hey, you know, there's actually a real 
chance of, of doing that type of job um, just because of how close I work with them now. And I, I kind of got to experience mm -hmm. firsthand of what that role was like. And that's, that's really where, where the, the seed was planted. Yeah, definitely. So how did you actually make that transition to being a product manager? Was it taking on different projects, working closely with them? Was timing involved? Did you have to leverage any, any internal social capital or your network at all? Yeah, yeah. So, um, I, so when, I, when I started to become interested in it, um, I, you know, I, I started putting together a plan on kind of how, how I'd actually make that transition. And, and to be honest, I think the, the biggest mistake that people make if they want to make that career transition is first just not believing that it's possible and not trying. Um, and I think that it, being at a small company um, helps a lot. In fact, I had someone ask me the other day this exact question, and my advice was, you know, really, it's much easier to small company because these lateral moves are just more flexible and things like that. And you kind of are, you're exposed to each other more. So my, my plan was, um, first, I just talked to all the PMs uh, that, you know, in, in the company, there was only set, like six or seven. And I just kind of asked, hey, you know, do you, could you see me in this role? Could you, uh, you know, what are some tips you'd give me? And then I'd always ask them, who is someone else that I should talk to? Kind of always ask for a referral. Who should I go to next? And and that kind of led me through a chain of different people and leadership that, you know, at least now we're aware that I was interested in that. That's really the first step. Um, but ultimately what I, I think what I ended up doing that was the most helpful was mm -hmm. I, after talking to people, I, I realized that I should probably try and do a project or something like that. That's, you know, that kind of puts me into the mindset of a PM it helps me do some aspect of that job. Mm -hmm. And what I ended up doing is I ended up building a system for basically aggregating feature requests across our entire customer base. Um, because it's, it's, it's really a challenging thing for leadership and for, for product and engineering to understand all the things that are being requested because there's so much. And it's, it's hard to make it numeric in some way that you can make kind of like, you know, black and white decisions based off of it. And mm -hmm. so I, kind of became like a feature aggregator and I set up the systems and tools to do that. And that made me, you know, it made me interact with PM more. It also made me interact with the broader SE teams more to kind of collect mm. all this. And it was good experience to try to, you know, get a, a taste of, of what it was like to make the transition from SE to PM. Yeah. It sounds like you approached it in a very methodical way. How long did that process take? Was this done over the course of a month or six months? It was about, yeah, I would say it was about six months. Um, from basically having the first conversation with someone saying, hey, I'm interested in this, um, to actually doing it. Mm -hmm. And do you feel like you had to put in a lot of additional time outside of your primary role? Like this, because you're effectively taking on additional projects in addition to being at a fast-growing company. Yeah, it, it was to a degree. Um, but also, I was also doing something else that the business needed. And so I was fulfilling a goal of the company. It wasn't like it was, uh, you know, superfluous work, but I think that that kind of gave an excuse to my manager to say, okay, I know he's working on this side project, but it's a valuable thing to do. And so if he's not working as much on something else, that's kind of okay. And it wasn't totally replaced, but also, you know, I kind of asked, I, when people asked me this before, I just kind of like, you know, it's okay to prioritize yourself and your career sometimes. Mm -hmm. by taking some effort that you're taking out of your job, your day job. Mm -hmm. If you work 10% less, it, it's not a crime. It's, mm -hmm. it's you prioritizing an investment in yourself and your career with that company. Right. 
And if your company can't give you, you know, that amount of time and that's not okay, then, you know, I don't think, you know, that they have your, you know, your interest in mind. So I think that's, you know, always a good and okay trade-off to make. Yeah, no, that's really great to hear a bit about this, this process in detail. What have you seen internal candidates doing wrong, uh, you know, when attempting to make moves like this? Yeah, like I said, I think the, the biggest mistake that people do is just give up too early. I think that, number one, yeah. they assume they need an MBA, which is not true. I don't have an MBA. I know there's, you know, mo- half the people on my team don't have MBAs, and they're product managers at Google. I, I think that mm-hmm. that is not a, a prerequisite to being a good product manager. I think it's very possible to be as good, if not better, without MBA. So that's, that's one thing, you know, I, I think that I want to dispel. Um, and the other thing is just they just assume it's not possible. Um, and so they just or they don't reach and reach out and, and actually try and have these conversations. I mean, it's kind of like the first step is exploration. That exploration is just talking to people. Second step is kind of like you're actually uh, proof of concepting what it would be like to be a PM. And then um, yeah. another thing is I see that they sometimes focus too much on the technical where you know, you being very, very technically proficient is not what makes you a good PM. It does, it's a requirement, but that's not what's going to put you above the rest. And so kind of focus on, you know, a lot of the organizational aspects of it and that are, that are really kind of uh, are, are a little more long-term important at the end of the day. Yeah, no, no, that makes sense. And so uh, this is a really great, great story. I think there are a lot of really tangible and valuable lessons that, uh, we can take away from this, but uh, you were able to accomplish all of this uh, while working in the same office with everyone. What advice would you offer to candidates interviewing internally or externally right now? How can they stand out uh, and, and build these relationships with the right stakeholders? Yeah, yeah. I, I, so <clears throat> I, I do think moving from an S, I think this is generally true, moving between roles is always, I think there's like basically three axes, right? You can either move up in seniority, you can move, um, you can change positions and you can change companies. Mm -hmm. Doing two out of those three is really hard. Doing three out of three is impossible. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It it, it probably happens, but it's very difficult to change, you know, to a different role, different company, and also get a promotion all at the same time. Mm -hmm. So I I think that, I think that doing these things internally within your company is the easiest thing. And, and, you know, you might want to think about that, you know, when you're, if you're looking to look at a new company, what is the kind of, what kind of growth expansion do you see long-term? Like, do, could you do an SE role for a year, for a couple of years and then transition over to product or engineering or something else? And because doing those kind of trans, role transitions within the same company is just so much easier than doing it across companies. In fact, a lot of companies will look and say, well, if you don't have experience in this type of role, I, we won't even consider you. Why would we, that's taking a very, uh, a big bet just on faith that you can do this. Um, and so, so I think my advice for kind of doing those kind of roles is just trying to see how you can facilitate that internally um, yeah. and, uh, and, and kind of setting yourself up to doing that. Uh, and, and really it's, it helps just by starting to, to build relationships, even if you're not in the same office, that's fine. Um, I, I remember when I was an SE at Cisco, someone actually gave me the advice that I kind of took, but I wish I had taken more. 
to go, they said, go over to the engineering department and just go sit down in where the desks, where the, where the software engineers sit and just get to know them um, and set up a one-on-one with one of the product managers and just meet with them monthly. And, and I think that's really great advice because it, it's actually super beneficial to both sides. Like I, mm-hmm. I spend my day in meetings talking about scheduling and talking about, you know, specific implementations that we could try out and stuff like that. And I'm lucky if I get one customer conversation a day. People from the field are like big aggregators, aggregating all these conversations for you. And so I find it invaluable when someone from the field set, you know, sets up a, a meeting with me that's just, a, hey, here are all the things I've been seeing lately. Because that, that saves me a bunch of time. And it's also useful for them. They get to build that relationship. They get to understand a little bit more about you know, different aspects that might impact the future of the, of the product. Um, and so, yeah, so building relationships virtually or in person, I think, are super invaluable to kind of making that, that career uh, transition. Yeah, that's, that's really insightful, especially for internal candidates who are looking to make moves like you did, is really focusing and honing in on those, those relationship pieces. I'm curious, being at, at Cisco, Docker, Google, all amazing companies, and I'm sure you've been involved in the interview process where you're interviewing candidates either for SE or PM type roles at those companies. What, what are you finding that candidates are missing out or are not providing in those interview processes to, to get into those amazing companies either as an SE or a PM? Yeah, this is a, this is a good, good question. Um, it's like an interview question itself. <laughs> it's so true. Yeah, I think it's um, it, it's great, and you have such a, a special lens to to share. Like, what what skills, characteristics are they behavioral or technical? Uh, you know, do you see candidates missing uh, when uh, because you know by the time they get in front of you, really one out of four, one out of five is going to get an offer. So speaking to those those other four or five that don't get the offer. That is a good question. And I think that there's a lot of anxiety surrounding interviewing at companies like, you know, Google and Amazon and Slack and, and Twilio. Um, and, and I think a lot of the anxiety, first of all, Google doesn't ask the kind of crazy questions that kind of it was once famous for. It, it, you know, some of those things were done in the past, but I think that the interview process, um, you know, those things were found not to be actually as effective. Now, one of the, the things the ping pongs in the airplane, you didn't get asked yeah. that question. For the <laughs> now, the funny thing is, like, there there are some estimation questions which are kind of wild, um, but it's not, yeah, not that crazy thing where it's like, you know, yeah, asking estimation of just some random thing, and if you get the answer right, well, then you get the job. Um, it's, but one thing that is really challenging, uh, particularly about Google interviews, is just how open-ended um, it can be. Uh, there was some interviews where it's one question, and you're, and the entire 45-minute interview, you're basically answering and kind of continuing on on the scenario started by that one question. And so I think there's a lot of, you know, anxiety built up in that. And I think one thing that that a lot of people make mistakes with is just not slowing down and taking a breath. Um, especially with, you know, these more strategic positions where, you know, you're being evaluated on how you make decisions. And so, uh, so it's really important to kind of get your bearings, slow down, think about how you're going to answer things, 
um, because how you answer is going to influence where that interviewer is going to take you for the rest of this question. And so you want to um, kind of think like which possible options, which paths is this answer going to take me so that, um, so that I can kind of build, you know, an answer that makes sense. It's really easy to go into an interview, be nervous, and say something that literally makes no sense. <laughs> and it happens to everybody. It just it, it's just about anxiety, and so you got to slow yourself down and just kind of think, you know, where where's this answer going to take me? And it's okay to say, hey, you know what? Can I just have a second to think about that? And so, um, yeah. yeah, I guess my answer is just don't be scared. <laughs> I like that a lot. Yeah, it's it's coming from that place of encouragement, and uh, I like that a lot. Um, I want to kind of step out of the the interview type questions that we've been talking about and, and how candidates can kind of differentiate themselves or do things differently and uh, talk a little bit more about just being able to influence product in general is something that is a huge part of the sales engineering uh, team and individual's role. And especially as you put it earlier, we're, we're talking with customers on a day-to-day -day basis, um, kind of have the ear to the railroad track, so to speak. What, would you, what advice would you give to your former SE self on interacting with product and engineering teams? Yeah, yeah. And I think different SEs see different sizes depending on which customers they represent, right? Um, if you're an SE and you have a, a large group of small customers, your ability to really influence product is, is somewhat limited, right? If you have, you know, top, a top 10 account within your company, you typically have the ear of a PM, um, so that and you probably know them on a first name basis so that you're able to influence um, the product much more. But there's much more than that that actually really helps in kind of helping shape the direction of the products that actually suits where your customers are going. Because I see a lot of the times um, things don't get prioritized just be because of misconnections and miscommunication. So mm -hmm. I, I, I think that kind of having done SE and then go over to PM has really helped in, in, in understanding the full life cycle of a feature request, right? Because a feature request is customer says something at a meeting and I go, yeah, it'd be really great. We really need this. And then it has to flow through an SE to maybe, you know, the SE manager or maybe to uh, a product manager and then to other product manager and then to a director for a decision. And then it has to be developed by someone and then it has to get scheduled and then project managers, you know, pin it for a release and whatever. And, and, at that point in time, the, the, the feature request lifecycle is nine months long. There's been some things wow. that I, I look back at an issue that was filed three years ago, and I'm like, oh, cool, we finally closed that. I wonder if that customer is still around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. is, that, is that still a pain today? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, is this even relevant anymore? And, and maybe it's not, right? Um, and, and so that's why kind of, making sure that that feature requests like this aren't just passed from person to person without anybody like really seeing the full end-to-end -end process. And that's why it's so important kind of how SEs are communicating the requests from their customers and kind of how they're putting them through a system and then tracking them, making sure that, you know, they, they, they come to completion. But um, I remember at, so when I was at Docker and, and this is like one of the first things I did when I moved to PM because I, I was so fresh at like kind of with the SE experience that all I wanted to do was kind of make SEs and PMs work better together. Because um, especially, I think whatever you're in, you, you become very focused on that and you kind of forget and you leave your old life behind. So right? we had all these seasoned yeah. PMs that they had to totally yeah. forgot what it's like. Um, and so 
one of the things I want to do is just, I, yeah, I wrote up some guides on how people, sh on how the field should be filing issues. Um, and, uh, and I had a couple of rules and it was basically like, you know, first just be, be concrete. You know, what is it? There's so many times where it's, oh, they need this. Um, but then you really got to dig down and peel the onion back. You know, what's the problem? And then you ask why, why, why? Ask the five whys. Keep on saying why until you can't get any further down. And then you also want to understand with every single feature request, you're balancing what, what's the, what's the, um, how much does the customer feel it? What's the magnitude of the customer pain versus what's, you know, how much are they willing to pay for it? Which usually those two are correlated. Sometimes they're not, right? If it's a small customer, they may feel a lot of pain, but if they don't mean very much to the company, we're not going to, you know, move mountains for um, a, a really, really, you know, tiny, tiny deal. And then also is what's the cost to actually implement it, right? And so these three things need to come together and they ultimately result in product influence and changing, changing the product. And so that's kind of why it's so, super important when you're filing issues or talking to PM or escalating things. So it's like, why, why, why? What's the degree of the pain? You want to see, you know, you want to give examples of what, um, what the customer's already tried. It's kind of like indicates, you know, have they thought of this? Have they thought of this? It also shows, you know, how much pain it means to them if they tried six different things and they can list out the pros and cons of each approach and tell you exactly why their feature request is better than all of them. Um, and then also kind of give a, a concrete example of what exactly does the customer want to see? Um, I've seen, you know, badly communicated feature requests that, uh, you know, end up in an implementation that ends up not working for the customer, especially if there's, you know, something gets communicated, some, some software engineer builds something that, and they haven't talked to anybody in the field. It comes out nine months later, we say, hey, you know, we came out with it. Guess what? It's the wrong thing. Doesn't, doesn't really work mm. because of one tiny little, you know, aspect. And because yeah. there wasn't tight communication, you know, it, it's all messed up. So that's kind of like my tips. I think a big part of product influence is one relationships and then two, all those specifics I just mentioned about really being concrete. Yeah, no, there's one, one about this feature release thing that, that you didn't touch on is what I've seen is, is sometimes uh, PMs or product building features for customers and, and then the customers don't use it. That's another really painful oh, yeah. one as well. That's You're the worst. Like, yeah, that's the worst. Where you asked us for this. We built this to spec, and now you're not using it. Yeah, and that's another great tip is, like, if you, if you have asked for something and it was big, especially if it's only for your customer, right? Um, and actually, if it's only for your customer, then you have, as an SE, a responsibility to the engineering team that's building that stuff for you, for you to make your number, um, to follow up with that and make sure that, you know, the customer's gonna use it. Cause I, you know, if there's a big thing, especially if it's dedicated for a customer, I like to follow up and make sure, hey, by the way, we're like 70% done with the implementation, but customer still needs this, right? <laughs> because if they don't, well, we could at least maybe save the last 30% and just not do it. Um, so there's always a responsibility to kind of stay on top of things. Mm -hmm. That, that makes a lot of sense. And, and Mark, you were like the perfect person to talk with about this feedback system. Like you, you were both an SE and a PM and you could tell you like, you're really passionate about making this type of a system work and making these two teams work better together so that ultimately we can d deliver a better product and a better experience for our customers. Um, in terms of, of like, say 
I'm an SE today and I want to go and, and spin up a, like a better feedback system. It sounds like some of these tactical uh, ways that you mentioned about just kind of bundling up feature requests is a good way to do that. Um, I know you've, you've started this feedback system at a couple, couple prior past roles. Um, how else should someone go about implementing a, a better overall structure or feedback system if, if they want to be that person and kind of mirror what the, the path that you took? Yeah. You know, some of the best SEs I've seen have just kind of done this implicitly without even knowing it. Um, there is an SE I worked with that um, came to me with a, uh, with, a, with a feature request for a company, and, and, and it, was a, it was a reasonably large com um, customer. Um, but then they also said, by the way, I talked to three other SEs, and there are six other customers that want it, and it's these six customers. And it was like, wow, you just did my job for you. I want to implement this for you myself. <laughs> like, uh, just, just that degree of kind of ownership over understanding that it's not just about your customer, it's about the business. And if you can kind of make those connections with other people at your level and your peer group, that makes it that much easier to show, to say, hey, there's a dollar magnitude on this feature request that means something for the business. Um, and you are already accelerating the, the, um, the kind of – the pace that, that that feature will get implemented by skipping a lot of steps because the PM doesn't have to do that themselves because ultimately it might be slower if, if you have to rely on other people to do all that aggregation for you and you, you are kind of closer to the field anyways. And so it, it, it just helps lubricate the system. Yeah. Love, love that perspective. Yeah. But this, this can be taken further. I mean, I think that's, it's great that when people do that implicitly for things they need, um, but I remember there was one thing that I really liked that an SE manager um, at Docker did. He always had a three things list. And in every one-on-one -on -one that he did with his SEs, he go, what are your three things? And it's basically like three product needs. Like could be like something that's broken. And I mean, it always had to be something reasonably large, right? Um, or just a feature request that keeps on coming. And so he had all these three things from everybody. And it was a good way of just kind of roughly getting a pulse of what your customer base needs. And that was a really kind of like a kiss, like a keep it stupid, stupid, uh, simple, stupid um, yeah. system. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like it was so simple, right? But it, it worked, it, it, it actually worked. And, and our VP of sales would like always be pointing to the list and like yelling at engineering and like the things that were on the top of the list. It was, it was not a complex system, but you know, it really worked and salespeople really liked it. Yeah, love that. And and sometimes as engineers, I feel like we, we try to overcomplicate things. And that, that is a good reminder. Sometimes it's better just to keep it simple. <laughs> so, Mark, I can't thank you enough. This was so great to, to learn and to have you share your insight around this topic. But switching gears, uh, we're going to get to the rapid fire questions. These are just a couple of questions that we asked to every guest. So what is a book that has greatly influenced your professional or personal life? Yeah, um, let me think. So I guess I'll give you, I'll give you two. So um, Cracking the PM Interview is, sounds like a cheesy book, but is one of the best books just on general interview that I've ever read. It was written, it was written by a Google PM um, and, and recommended, me during, recommended to me during the interview process. And it's so practical. And so tangible that, you know, anybody interviewing, I think it's a, a, a good book to, to pick up and read. Uh, so it was really helpful for that. And so, then um, another Mark, one. Did, 
to, to jump in before okay. you give that second book, how long did you, we, we talked about how long you took to transition from uh, your, your position internally at Docker, but how long did you spend preparing for your Google interview? So this is, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you my little secret. It was about, it was about six months, but um, what I did, what I found, and this should be a company, and I'll start it if someone doesn't eventually. <laughs> um, I, I found a website called Stellar Peers which was a PM focused site where you basically, you, you set up a time on a Google calendar with someone around the world and you interview practice each other. And so you basically start up a zoom call and then you, you say, Hey, what do you want to practice today? Like, oh, I want to do strategy questions or estimation questions or blah, blah, blah. And then you just do 30 minutes and you swap. And I was doing that for like two months and nothing helped me more than that. Because at the end of the day, an interview is a, is a performance, like, a, mm. like going on stage, and you can't let your nerves get to you. Best thing is practice. And uh, so that was, uh, yeah, it was about, it was, I mean, I think from like thinking about joining to actually, you know, finally joining was about six months, but that was, uh, that was a big part of the process. Wow, that is an incredible little tidbit. I completely agree with that. And uh, it sounds like it's also, you're, you're very thoughtful and methodical in, in approaching these challenges. You're not just trying to, to, to wait until you're unhappy or wait until, you know, I want to move in one week or in a month. You're, you're really thinking about these things, having conversations, building relationships, learning about the role, doing the role, reading books about the role, practicing, and then making the jump. Just so. have to sacrifice a lot of sleep. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's just great, great to hear. So what's that second book? So there's one called Discipline Equals Freedom. Uh, this was written by uh, a former, I think, Marine. Um, and I always thought it was a great book. I cra it's like a really short book. It's written in all caps. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and uh, um, honestly, it's like a little refresher. It's, it's just kind of all about... Um, how well I guess how important discipline is but also how to create discipline and I, I think one of the things I learned from that book is that starting is the thing that actually gives you the motivation to do the thing right rather than trying to motivate yourself to do it just start doing it and then you realize after a little bit that you're you're now motivated to continue doing the thing mm -hmm. yeah no that's great advice I think everyone can use a little more discipline. I, I've heard that before, the discipline equals freedom, and there's definitely truth to that. So next question, what is the worst professional advice you've ever been given? You know, I, when I was at Cisco, there was, there's so many different specializations for SE, and I saw what a lot of people did is, and I got this advice as well, it was like, oh, you know what? Um, there's going to be a role in this area or on that team in this particular technology or whatever. I would specialize in, in that so that you can get, you know, that role or something like that, which was kind of like making a very long-term career decision to optimize for a short-term outcome. It was like, you're going to, you know, base what you kind of what you specialize in or what area you're in to do, to give you a short-term gain or to achieve some short-term objective. And so I think it's always kind of important to prioritize, you know, things that have long-term impact over things that have short-term impact. And, so, and don't get those reversed on accident uh, because you'll end up optimizing for the wrong thing. Oh, wow. Yeah, that, that's great advice. I, I, could, I love how you flipped 
bad advice and turned it into good advice. <laughs> but flipping that question, <laughs> flipping that question on its head, what's the best professional advice you've ever been given? I guess keep an open mind. I think that um, you know, keeping your eyes open to all the things that are going around your career. You know, your career is a long time, and uh, and there's a lot of possibilities. And so, I think that um, keeping an eye open to all the things you do and not shutting things down. Um, is a good idea to kind of always keep your curiosity um, and, and keep your interest, which which keeps you, you know, exposed to fresh things and, and it kind of always keeps you on a, on a good path. Love that. that that's such a, a great positive note as well to, to wrap things up here. Mark, thanks so much for coming on and, and having this conversation today. I, I think this is one I'm definitely going to re-listen to and, and pull back out some of these, uh, these good, good pieces of advice and, and your perspective here. Wow, what a great episode. We wanted to take a second and thank you for listening. We appreciate you and hope this episode helps you learn and grow in your career as an SE and in your professional life. If you found this conversation as insightful as we did, please share the podcast with a teammate or your team and let us know what you think by subscribing and rating wherever you listen. Finally, if there are any topics or speakers you think would be great for the podcast, please use the email alias in the show notes to reach us. We'll see you next time on the Edge of Sales Engineering.